investigate me as much as you want. I had nothing to do with this. For two years, Alan Blackthorne told that to anyone who would listen. And it turns out, he was lying. He did hire someone to kill his ex-wife. And the bloody scene unfolded in front of her 23-month-old quadruplets. That gruesome story and more are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. Coming up, in our Only in Florida segment, I'll discuss the recent arrest of a Polk County woman who deputies said was drunk while on horseback. She was charged with DUI and for good measure, an additional count of animal cruelty. And later, in our Looking Back segment, I'll take an in-depth look at the murder of Sheila Bellish, who was slain in her Sarasota home in front of her toddlers. After gaining fame in Texas as the Quad Mother, Bellish secretly moved to the Gulf Coast of Florida to escape her abusive ex-husband, San Antonio millionaire Alan Blackthorne. But Blackthorne tracked her down, orchestrated a murder plot, and paid to have her killed. Tuesday marks the 20th anniversary of Bellish's slaying. My guests for that segment include two Florida-based authors, Craig Pittman, who also is a columnist for the Tampa Bay Times, and Tim Dorsey, a former Knight Metro editor of the Tampa Tribune. But first, after the break, I'll talk about a verdict in a 30-year-old rape case out of Fort Lauderdale. On Thursday, a jury of four men and two women found 54-year-old Dobie Hunter guilty in the kidnapping and rape of a Fort Lauderdale teenager. The crime had gone unsolved for nearly 30 years before a DNA hit linked Hunter to the crime. The South Florida Sun-Sentinel reported Friday that jurors found Hunter guilty of lesser charges than what were originally filed against him. In even more surprising news, the victim, now 47 years old, who testified via Skype, suggested the punishments should reflect the amount of time she waited for her case to be solved. Broward County Circuit Judge Alona Holmes agreed to carry out that 30-year sentence, but looked squarely at the defendant seated in front of her and told him he probably deserved a life sentence. Holmes said, quote, The kidnapping aggravates this crime. I could send you to prison for life and not lose a minute of sleep tonight. Hunter, meanwhile, was apologetic. He said he was sorry for what he did, pointed out that his victim was a God-fearing person, and he said he was too. He finished his statement in court by saying as long as God has forgiven him, he was all right with that. According to Sun Sentinel reporter Rafael Almeida, who covered the trial, 
The victim testified earlier last week that she had been abducted by two men on October 1, 1985, while walking with a friend. She was only a few blocks from her home in northwest Fort Lauderdale when the men rolled up in a tan sedan. She said that Hunter, who was the driver of the car, jumped out and pulled her by the hair. He was so forceful in the way he grabbed her that he literally pulled her out of her shoes. The victim's friend went home and told his family, who called 911. Nine hours later, after both Hunter and his friend had repeatedly raped her, she was driven back to her neighborhood and dropped off. The case was stagnant until 2014, when the victim's daughter turned 16, the age the victim was when she was raped. She was compelled to contact police to find out whether there were any leads in her case, and investigators learned it had stalled, but they got it rolling again. A detective soon discovered that a rape center still had the DNA evidence on file, and that it was a match to Hunter. The victim was interviewed by detectives, and she described the entire ordeal again. The nine hours of physical and sexual torture that she endured. Hunter has had numerous arrests and convictions and has been a registered sex offender since 2003. Authorities said Hunter's accomplice was Alfred Stevens, who died in 2011. Coming up, I'll discuss the arrest of a Florida woman who was accused of riding her horse along a busy street while drunk. 53-year-old Donna Byrne was arrested Thursday and charged with DUI after someone called 911 to report that a woman was riding a horse along a busy Lakeland street and she had appeared confused. Deputies found her on Comby Road and gave her a breathalyzer test. Byrne registered a blood alcohol level of .16, twice the legal limit in Florida. It wasn't the first time Byrne found herself in the news after she was seen riding a horse. A national radio show called Day to Day, which airs on National Public Radio, profiled Byrne, who was an out-of-work truck driver looking for a new way to earn a living. At the time, she lived in Arcadia in Santa Rosa County. When NPR reporter Brian Reed caught up to her, she was at a rest stop in Wildwood, about 130 miles north of her home. She had brought with her her two horses. She rode one and pulled the reins of the other. Here is a portion of Reed's story. On a road full of motorcycles, pickup trucks, and 18-wheelers, it isn't too hard to spot a woman on horseback. So Donna Byrne is attracting a lot of attention. Byrne's desire, she told Reed, was to make it to Texas or Montana with her two horses and then find work as a cowgirl. Her horses' names were Jay and Tonto. He's got a nice personality. You get on him. This is Tonto, her pack horse. And then he wants to buck. And how about Jay? She's all right. She gets one of them temperaments. She wants to go, 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 go. Kind of hold her back. Kind of like you a little bit? Yeah. (laughs) It was aimed to be a heartwarming story. Reed described Byrne as a character in a John Steinbeck novel. Byrne even talked about her dream of owning a log cabin in Montana, surrounded by mountains. 
NPR found out about her after newspapers, including the Tampa Tribune and Bradenton Herald, published stories about her. Byrne had motorists pulling off to the side of the road giving her money. A veterinarian gave her horses roadside shots, and a farrier fitted them with new shoes. Charity just kept coming her way. But in the end, Byrne's dream did not come true. The horse she was riding Thursday was named Bo Duke. He was hitched to a deputy cruiser while Byrne was given a sobriety test. Eventually, Byrne was taken to jail and Bo Duke was taken to an animal control livestock facility. Byrne was charged with DUI and animal cruelty. It's likely the horse will be returned to Byrne, but the Orlando Sentinel reported on Friday that Polk County Sheriff Grady Judd has a history of putting up fights to prevent animal cruelty convicts from getting their animals back. It remains to be seen whether he will do that in this case. Coming up, the story about the brutal death of Sheila Bellish and the long wait for justice. During a televised interview in 1999, Alan Blackthorne was asked by a CBS News reporter to describe himself, and he was succinct. Well, I'm a husband, I'm a father, um, I'm a golfer. He sure loved his golf. He said to the same reporter that he would play the game all day Monday through Friday and then spend his weekends with his family. When the plan was hatched to have his ex-wife killed, Blackthorn was on the links. As his ex-wife was getting butchered inside her Sarasota home, he was putting away on a green somewhere in San Antonio. After a federal grand jury had returned indictments on two life felonies, he found out that news while on a golf course. It seemed the biggest punishment that could be handed to Blackthorn was taking away his golf game. And that's exactly what authorities did in January of 2000. For more than two years, people across North America eagerly awaited the day of Blackthorn's arrest. Everyone else who was criminally involved with the brutal murder of Sheila Bellish was in custody. The gunman, the gunman's cousin, and the middleman between the gunman's cousin and Blackthorn. Finally, law enforcement had enough to make the final and most sought-after arrest in its case. Tim Dorsey is a Tampa-based author who was the night metro editor at the Tampa Tribune when the news broke about Sheila's killing. It was a case that countless people, including him, followed to the end. The story was horrifying from the start and became more and more frustrating over time. It was such a grabber because it was, you know, just initially so sad, and then, and then you, and then you got angry as you read about, you know, all the you know, dominoes that were falling and how this actually came to be. Alan Blackthorne was an abusive husband. His wife, Sheila, left him and gained custody of their two daughters. She remarried and gave birth to quadruplets. In fear of her ruthless ex-husband, she and her new spouse and her six kids moved to Sarasota. 
Blackthorn, through persistence, lies, and manipulation, found out his wife's location. He convinced his golfing buddy to help him kill her. That golfing buddy, Daniel Rocha, recruited a man by the name of Sammy Gonzalez to carry out the killing. Gonzalez didn't feel comfortable inflicting violence on a woman, but he knew someone who had no such scruples. That would be his cousin, Joey Del Toro. On November 7, 1997, Del Toro hid in Sheila's utility room and waited for the time to strike. He shot Sheila and then slashed her throat with a knife. After he left, Sheila's frightened quadruplets spent the next six hours wailing and toddling in their mother's blood. Blackthorn was born Alan Van Hout. He was a native of Oregon. He was a problem child from the start. He was unwanted by his mother as well as his father. But his father stayed in his life well into adulthood. In spite of Blackthorn's psychological issues, which included a penchant for sexual deviance and animal cruelty, he was noticeably smart, ambitious, and self-sufficient. He didn't have much of an education, although he would fool people, including his future in-laws, into thinking he had graduated from Stanford. But he had what people frequently referred to as emotional intelligence. He could read people, and he could find their vulnerabilities and exploit them. Sheila was born Sheila Walsh. She was born in Topeka, Kansas, and was the fourth of six children. Tragedy always surrounded Sheila and her family. One of her younger sisters died from a heart defect while an infant. One of her older brothers later committed suicide. Her father, an Air Force officer, was killed when his gunship was shot down in southern Laos during the Vietnam War. Sheila was only 10 years old at the time. Blackthorn, unbeknownst to Sheila when she met him, had been married twice before. Blackthorn's first marriage ended after five years, and he had tormented that first wife, killing her dog with a two-by-four, insisting that she give up their first child for adoption, and convincing her to abort the second one. Blackthorn's kinky tastes and violent outbursts didn't help the marriage either, and it was more of the same during his second marriage. That wife left him after three years. Sheila was only aware of Blackthorn's second wife. Blackthorn convinced Sheila to marry him by their third date, even though his divorce wasn't even final. Her family was skeptical, but as was often the case, Blackthorn gave them a great first impression. He was sharp-looking and smart and seemed to have his life in order. Sheila's younger sister, Carrie, was the only holdout. Blackthorn never won her over. But it didn't matter. Sheila became his bride, and the couple moved to Hawaii, where he started a business with his father. Meanwhile, Blackthorn and his new bride had two daughters together. Life was never rosy in Hawaii. The Federal Drug Administration was ready to put the kibosh on Blackthorn's business, which was the distribution of what he called healthtronics, devices that aimed to give people tighter muscles without having to exercise. They were marketed as health beneficial, which drew the ire of the FDA. 
His father and half-brother were deeply involved in the business, but Blackthorne left them, rudely and abruptly. By then, Blackthorne wanted nothing to do with his family any longer. He wound up legally changing his surname from Van Hout to Blackthorne, after Richard Chamberlain's character and Shogun. Sometime after the Blackthorns settled in San Antonio, Sheila decided to leave him. The stress of the marriage had affected her appearance. She looked gaunt and colorless. Her family, particularly her younger sister, noticed. They also noticed bruises on her. The divorce was predictably ugly. Blackthorne filed so many motions in the case that it dragged on for years, until finally, Sheila went to law enforcement with the allegation that Blackthorne had sexually abused one of their daughters. Blackthorne, perhaps in an effort to avoid criminal prosecution, agreed to give Sheila full custody of their two daughters. The criminal case was not pursued by Sheila. She won a huge battle against a man who had terrorized her, and that sense of victory would be short-lived. Sheila fell in love with a pharmaceutical salesman named Jamie Bellish. The couple married, and they took infertility drugs in an effort to have an expanded family. The drugs worked. Sheila gave birth to three boys and a girl, quadruplets. That garnered some fame for the family. Newspapers and TV stations did stories about the children and then followed up with more stories. We wanted a baby really bad and, and then we got four, so we're like, we just feel four times luckier. But Sheila still needed to escape the wrath of her ex-husband. He too had remarried, but seeing his wife on the news with her new family likely enraged him and reminded him of what he had lost. And Blackthorne hated to lose. The late true crime author Anne Rule was moved to write a book about the case. Rule gained fame for her novel titled The Stranger Beside Me about Ted Bundy, who happened to be a former co-worker of hers, and 21 years later, she would write Every Breath You Take about the death of Sheila Bellish. Here is Rule telling A&E's American Justice how Sheila had found herself in grave danger once she slipped out of Blackthorne's grasp. I think at that point he began a terrible plot to destroy Sheila. The Bellishes moved to Sarasota. They told almost no one, only a few people they could trust. There was no social media at the time, and it was easy to keep phone numbers unlisted and addresses off the internet. Sheila told her family not to disclose their address to anyone particularly Blackthorne, who by this time had struck gold in his business life. He amassed a fortune exceeding $1 million. Sheila's youngest daughter, Daryl, who was not yet a teenager, was naive, and she had a vulnerable spot, which her father exploited. At one point, before the family moved, Daryl was punished by her mother, and she wound up with a bruise on her leg, and she told her father, who manipulated her into reporting it to police. Sheila was charged. Even after the family moved to Sarasota, Daryl remained in contact with her father. He's like, oh, well, where do you live? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you that. He's like, why not? I'm like, because my mom doesn't want me to tell you. Blackthorne was persuasive. 
He told her he only wanted to know the address so he could come see her during the upcoming holidays. Daryl gave in. Blackthorne made other efforts to locate Sheila. When he found out she had moved to Sarasota, he hired a private investigator out of Bradenton to track her down. A woman who once worked for Blackthorne said she was told by her former boss to go to the church where Sheila and her family worshipped and then follow her home and write down the address. Blackthorne even called the office of the bail bond agent that Sheila used to get out of jail following her child abuse arrest. Those calls were recorded, and Blackthorne didn't know that at the time. Yes, ma'am. You folks have a bond on a Sheila Bellish for $5,000? Uh, I can't release that information. I don't know who you are. Okay, what, what I'm trying to figure out is that well, I'm somebody that bailed money to and they skipped out of state on me. I, I'm just trying to figure out where out of state that they've run. And, well, I don't know. We're discussing anyone that would hurt a child. This is true. All of Blackthorne's lies to the bail bond agent employee were on tape. He told the employee he was a bookie looking to collect a debt. I do bet. Uh, I'm trying to be as discreet as I can be. I'm not asking you to release any information to me. All I'm trying to find out is, have they registered their address with you? Can you give me that information? And who am I speaking with? This is my first name. Uh, my name's Al. Those recordings would become vital evidence in the upcoming trial. Blackthorne wound up discovering Sheila's precise location, a home in the Gulfgate subdivision, located between US-41 and Interstate 75. Blackthorne needed to find a willing participant, and he didn't have to look far. His golfing buddy, Daniel Rocha, stepped up for him. Rocha later told authorities that Blackthorne convinced him to take part in Sheila's murder by convincing him that Sheila was an abusive mother. He also claimed that Blackthorne only told him to rough up the woman, not kill her. Prosecutors had a hard time believing Rocha, who apparently had an honesty deficiency. Either way, Rocha was told to find someone, so he recruited Danny Gonzalez. He declined to do it, according to detectives, because he didn't want to physically harm a woman. But instead of stopping the plot dead in its tracks by reporting it to the authorities, Gonzalez promised Rocha he could find the right guy to do it. The guy Gonzalez chose was Joey Del Toro, a star football player in high school who had dropped out of college and was working in Texas as a personal trainer. Del Toro, while in prison, told American Justice that he was not fully aware of the gravity of his actions while he was savagely murdering Sheila, but a sense of remorse came over him later. I hadn't realized what I had done. I knew I had done something wrong, but I hadn't realized what I had done. I just felt numb, like I couldn't feel anything. I asked God, I go, God, why did you not let me die? before I had done something like this. There's not a day that goes by that I don't regret everything that I did. Del Toro got the directions, headed east down Interstate 10, and headed for his target's house. Fueled by the notion that Sheila was an abusive mother, 
Del Toro waited in the utility room. He told law enforcement that he developed a soft spot for Sheila the more he watched her interact with her children. He was ready to sneak out of the house somehow, but Sheila saw him. Whether she noticed the door was ajar or opened the door and saw him standing there, Del Toro shot Sheila in the face with a 45 caliber bullet. Then he grabbed a knife and sliced her throat twice, which caused blood to pour out of her and pull onto the floor. Del Toro, who was wearing camouflage, fled the house and ran to the sports car he had parked down the road. An alert neighbor saw the car and thought the driver was behaving suspiciously, so that neighbor wrote down the tag number of the vehicle. For the next six hours, Sheila's quadruplets were left in the house alone with their dead mother. Whoever came home next would be walking into a sickening scene. That person turned out to be Sheila's oldest daughter, Stevie, who was 13 years old at the time. Stevie talked about that day with CBS's 48 Hours. Some days I just, I can't stop crying, you know, because I keep thinking about November 7th. As she was coming home, Stevie's spirits were high. I was actually running home from school. I had some good news. I found out a guy that liked me was going to ask me out. So I was so excited and I had to run home and tell her that I was going to sit by the phone all weekend. But when Stevie got to the front porch, she realized the door to the house was unlocked. Her mother never left that door unlocked, especially after moving to Sarasota. That was when Stevie felt her first sense of dread. The first thing I really saw is uh, the babies. Just babies crying. That was the only noise I heard was babies crying. And so I didn't understand, you know, how she could just let them sit there and cry because she didn't do that. I had um, done two circles around the house trying to find her and kind of struck me to check the laundry room. The babies were wearing life jackets and nothing more. It could be that Sheila was getting them ready to play in the pool before she was killed. It appeared the children had been crying for a long time. Then Stevie found the first clue that her mother wasn't okay. There was you know, blood like all over the floor. The blood wasn't just on the floor. Streaks of blood were found on Stevie's young siblings too. Three of them had it like streaked on them. One of them had it in his hair. Then came the shocking discovery. I don't think it registered in my mind that she was right at my feet. You know, I didn't believe it. I looked at her, at her face again. And, and when I actually bent down and looked at her, that's when I realized that she was dumb. Stevie called 911. Clips from that call were aired on American Justice. Your mom what? Okay, what makes you think that? Went all around places and a cut on her neck. There we go. Then you saw her phone. Okay, Stevie, we have help on the way. Deputies from the Sarasota County Sheriff's Office showed up fast. They too were traumatized by what they saw. Here is lead detective Chris Iorio. 
when the deputies first got there, they thought maybe the kids were injured because they did have blood on them. It was later determined that they were just walking around in their mother's blood. Eventually, news got out about the quad mother's murder, all the way to San Antonio. Blackthorn recalled sitting on the sofa with his new wife, Maureen, and seeing a segment on the news that laid the blame squarely on him. We turned on the news, and the announcer came on and said, Sarasota police say the ex-husband did it. The search is on for the ex-husband. At that point, I mean, not only are you just kind of dumbfounded, but Maureen said, you know what, we better get a lawyer. Craig Pittman author of O Florida and a columnist with the Tampa Bay Times said that case generated interest from the moment news of it was aired. The image of those children on the kitchen floor next to their mother left everyone aghast and curious. Just the bizarre circumstances of it. I mean, I think the thing everybody that really fixated on, and understandably so, is just this image of the dead woman. She's apparently, you know, she's bleeding from the neck and she's crawled across the floor and expired. And now her four uh, uh, quads are left there with the body and they're crawling around. I guess two of them actually crawled through the blood at one point and they're all wearing these life jackets. So it's this very weird image that you have in mind of, you know, the dead mom and then the babies in life jackets and uh, where, you know, it's almost like it was a symbol of, you know, their lives were spared and the, the mom's was taken. Whether that case spawned an idea for a series of novels and or television shows isn't known, but a famous writer by the name of Jeff Lindsay, a Florida native, and may have been moved by it. Those even somewhat familiar with the story of the serial killer vigilante Lindsay created could easily think back to the Sheila Bellish murder and think there could be a correlation. That's sort of a powerful image. I mean, if you remember the TV show Dexter and the and the books that it was based on, that was the setup for Dexter, was that Dexter's mother had been killed, and he, as a child, was there and was left alone with the body and the blood for quite a while. And it, you know, supposedly warped his brains. But it's a, just an arresting image of life and death uh, altogether in one place. And, and then the horror of the daughter who comes home from school and finds the body and finds this gruesome scene confronting her. I mean, it's just... It's, It's hard to shake that from your imagination. Stevie immediately knew who was responsible for her mother's death. Her sister, Daryl, knew. Sheila's husband, Jamie, knew. Sheila's sister, Carrie, knew. It was Alan Blackthorne. So naturally, law enforcement surmised Blackthorne was the main suspect. Even those who read about the murder from the get-go weren't jumping to the conclusion that this was a random act. Sheila was targeted. Dorsey, who saw the news feed come across his desk at the Tribune the night of the murders and who pitched the story for the front page, spoke to me about his first impression of the case. When you saw that it happened, you knew that uh, it, it just didn't ring right, that it was a random kind of a thing. There, there was something behind it, uh, you know, just because of... And, 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 it was, and also, it was just... It was horribly, uh, just horribly sad. I mean, if, if you read the details, it could be printed. From the start, Blackthorne went public claiming his innocence. 
he agreed to interviews with TV stations in San Antonio. Never, in no way. I didn't want her murdered. I didn't want her hurt. I didn't want anything in that nature to ever happen to her, period. He later said this to CBS News reporter Peter Van Zandt. Never, in no way. I didn't want her murdered. I didn't want her hurt. I didn't want anything in that nature to ever happen to her, period. The investigation took off from the start. There was that neighbor who wrote down Del Toro's tag number. Then they found Del Toro's vehicle parked at his girlfriend's house. It contained everything, including the firearm used in the crime and the handwritten directions to Sheila's home. A manhunt was underway for Del Toro, and he eventually was found in Monterey, Mexico, but it would take a year to extradite him. Soon Gonzalez was arrested, then Rocha. Everyone was behind bars, except for Blackthorn. Rocha wound up being tried for murder. Up until the second day of his trial, he held out on cooperating with prosecutors. Finally, after realizing he was being confronted with a life sentence and Blackthorn was still in Texas playing golf, Rocha agreed to cooperate. There was a whole cavalcade of, of just shady characters and incompetent characters. I mean, it's almost like, I don't mean to make light of this, but it's almost like if you took the Nancy Kerrigan kneecapping thing and took it to a murder stage, you had all these levels of people who were just either seedy or incompetent or both, you know, And but, but it ended up in a far worse tragedy. Rocha talked a lot. Only not all of it was truthful. He failed a polygraph, which meant he could not be trusted as the witness the Blackthorn case hinged on. His trial moved forward, and he was convicted of murder and sentenced to life. After his conviction, Rocha agreed to be interviewed by Van Sant in an episode of 48 Hours. He made it uh, obvious to me that he wanted something done. He asked me if I knew anybody that, and at the time she was living in Bernie, Texas, uh, that would go to Bernie and, um, you know, rough her up a little bit. I knew it was wrong, but I thought it was helping. I thought it was helping two children. The reward Blackthorn was offering, according to Rocha, was $4,000 to mutilate Sheila and $10,000 to kill her. You gave Sammy Gonzalez $4,000 in cash. Where did you get the money? From Alan. From Alan Blackthorn. Right. You gave Sammy Gonzalez one picture of Sheila right. and her address. Where did you get that information in the picture? From Alan. From Alan Blackthorn. From Alan, yeah. So Alan Blackthorn was the puppeteer here? Sure. I don't think anybody doubts that. I mean, I don't think anybody uh, believes that I acted alone. Blackthorn was interviewed by Van Sant, too. Why would Danny Rocha, who says he didn't know Sheila, why would he get involved in a plot to kill her if you didn't ask him to? I don't have any idea. I don't know what has gone on with Danny Rocha. He says, this was your idea. Danny Rocha is a liar. He was right about that last part, and investigators knew it. They needed more evidence than Rocha's hearsay statements. And eventually, they got it. Those bail bondsmen phone recordings were uncovered. Then came the testimony of that private investigator who helped Blackthorn locate his wife. He had paperwork to back up his story. Federal prosecutors also got creative. 
They looked up the Violence Against Women Act from 1999 that seemed to give them a clear path to not only a conviction, but a life sentence. Authorities finally felt they had a strong enough case to take to the grand jury. On January 4, 2000, following his indictment, Blackthorne was arrested on charges of conspiracy to commit murder for hire and interstate domestic violence, both life felonies. The trial took place five months later. Rocha testified. Jurors told reporters they didn't trust Rocha that much. Additionally, Blackthorne took the stand in his own defense. Confident in his charisma, he laid on the charm as thick as he could, hoping it would make him a free man. Anne Rule attended the trial. He turned to the jury and he was so friendly and drawing them in as, as, you know, we're here together and we all see this is a fake case. It wasn't a slam dunk at all. And I remember wondering, is the jury going to buy this guy? One juror told the media there was one piece of evidence that was extremely damning to Blackthorne. It was the way in which Blackthorne coaxed his daughter, Daryl, to give up her address. He promised her he was going to visit her during the holidays. But after Daryl gave up the information, her mother was killed and Blackthorne never called her again. Daryl was duped twice by her father, once to accuse Sheila of abuse, which led to her mother's arrest, and again to get Sheila's address, which led to her mother getting killed. Daryl's resentment ran deep. She said so to American Justice. I have nothing to do with him, and I kind of wish he'd just die, because I don't think he deserves to live anymore. During Blackthorne's sentencing, Daryl testified. She pulled no punches. She told the judge, quote, The day I'm happy again is the day that my mom is alive. Unfortunately, that's not happening. So I guess I'll compromise. He can spend the rest of his life in jail and die there. Then I can go out and celebrate. She nearly got her chance one year later. Blackthorne was beaten and stabbed in the federal penitentiary in Beaumont, Texas. That led to a transfer to a federal facility in Atlanta. Eventually, Blackthorne was moved to Terry Hot, Indiana. And in November 2014, Blackthorne, at the age of 59, died in prison. Rocha is still serving a life sentence in Lake City. Del Toro is serving his life sentence in Graceville, about 90 miles northwest of Tallahassee. At his trial, Del Toro was forced to come face to face with Sheila's husband, Jamie. He held up photos of his slain wife. Mr. Del Toro, I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures of what you did to my wife. I'd like to show them to your family. Does your family realize that when you stabbed her in the neck, that the blade of the knife bent on her spinal column? You are a worthless coward with no remorse in your heart. Your Honor, put this cowardly, worthless animal in a cage where he can rot away. Gonzalez, now 47 years old, was released from prison in January 2014 
after serving close to 15 years. His last known place of residence was San Antonio, Texas. Pittman and I talked about how a case like this one can simultaneously horrify and fascinate us. That seems to happen a lot when it comes to crime news in Florida. You know, in Florida, the, the tragedy often wears the mask of comedy, you know, where you, you have these bizarre and ultimately kind of sad things happen that have elements to them that you, you either they're so weird you, you laugh about them or so comical you can't believe that comedy and tragedy could exist side by side like that, and yet it does in Florida. I mean, I always tell people if you, if you live in Florida, you'll never suffer from an irony deficiency. In cases like that, I mean, clearly there was a, a core tragedy to it, but there are also elements where you, you just kind of, you can't believe how bizarre it is and how wild things get. And that's everyday life in Florida. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week when I take a close look at the 2009 death of a Lakeland area lottery winner, Abraham Shakespeare, who wound up losing his fortune and his life to a woman who buried his remains under a slab of concrete in Plant City. My special guest for that segment will be Tampa Bay Times reporter Howard Altman and former Lakeland Ledger reporter Marissa Green. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.